Hello and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast in Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your producer and co-host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and historian, and we're really excited to have with us today the president and founder of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkup, who is an emergency room physician and former Navy SEAL. And our guest today is the executive editor of The Atlantic, Adrienne LaFrance. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Adrian, we're super excited about this interview. I'm super excited about this interview. Um, once I read your, your article, The New, the New Anarchy, um, back in April, I was, I, I was fascinated by your experience in writing it and um, very, very excited to pick your brain on this topic. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, you know, how did you get interested in all of this? I mean, I think... It really came out of an earlier story that I had written about QAnon and also just as an American living in the world and observing sort of the, the chaos uh, around us in terms of polarization, alienation, obviously acts of violence over the past several years. And, and it brought me to this question of, you know, we have this large portion of the population for whom um, reality seems optional or they sort of have broken with reality. and you mix that with uh, a, a profound sense of anger or um, frustration coupled with political arguments and then layer on the, the social web and all of the complexity that comes with how we communicate these days. And I, I was really left with, with two questions. One, like, has, you know, when in our history has it been like this? And, and secondly, how did we get through it with democracy intact and hopefully um, you know, it, I was searching for sort of a blueprint for how we could get through this tumultuous time without further bloodshed, frankly. Um, and so to do that, I wanted to sort of look to different moments in history in America and around the world to see what lessons and kind of warnings I could glean for our time. Yeah, and so, you know, the, the contemporary example that you chose was kind of the, the 2020 George Floyd protests and, and sort of street violence, really, in, in Portland, Oregon. And um, I'm curious how you chose that as kind of your, uh, you know, your lead into to the moment that we're in. Yeah, there are a few reasons for that. One was I wanted to find an example that highlighted how bad it could get. Um, I also wanted to find an example that sort of really demonstrated how the social contract can break, like what it looks like and what it can, you know, feel like when things are sort of falling apart around you in an uncontrollable way societally in terms of violence or, or um, chaos. And, and then the other thing that really drew me to Portland was it, it seemed like such a, um, almost a third rail in that in, you know, from afar, as someone who doesn't live in Portland, I had sort of watched the summer of 2020, how quickly partisan the conversation around what was happening there had become. And of course you saw, you know, then President Donald Trump was really focused on it in a way that was a way to underscore his campaign messaging. And then you, you saw, or at least I observed, people who m might be center left or left leaning or people you otherwise might not expect to be quite so embroiled in sort of partisan fighting, sort of reflexively disagreeing with characterizations that seem to be more complicated than um, they were saying, and so I sort of was like, I want to go and figure out like what actually happened there. Like, I want to talk to people who live there and covered it for the local newspapers and the officials who were trying to deal with it. Like, what 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 was the truth, and what again, what can we learn from what went down there? Do you, in going to Portland and, and kind of seeing you know the 
the folks on both sides, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me, I think there was a quote in your article that uh, you were interviewing someone and said, you know, this is, this is a collection of massive losers on both sides. Um, and did you, you know, I, I think that obviously is, is probably a, a simplification, but do you think that, you know, these types of, of moments and these types of violent confrontations have a tendency to attract, you know, for, for lack of a better term, people who might be down and out? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's literature and research and evidence that shows this, that, that people resort to violence. And I certainly found this through my reporting as well, that like one of the major social conditions that have has led to, you know, spurts or episodes of pronounced violence in history is is um, economic distress. And so, you know, I don't I want to be careful not to be a, a reductionist about it, but certainly uh, when someone feels like they have, you know, other when the other avenues toward fulfilling one's needs, whether it's the ability to buy groceries or have a job or whatever it is, when you don't have that, like naturally you can you can understand how someone might turn to a different kind of community or poor choices or you know, so absolutely that that is a factor um and i think uh and i think certainly is is an undercurrent of some of what we see in america today especially with such a highly visible wealth disparity and, and one that's growing yeah you know we we kind of became interested as an organization in this movement with the uh, i guess i would say the fallout from the thing that sort of thrust it kind of into our our uh you know, frontside focus, if you will, was the the plot in Michigan with Governor Whitmer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, even prior to, to January 6th, we, you know, we're sort of talking amongst ourselves, you know, how can we sort of push back on all of this? And, you know, really scary stuff. I know, I, know, I mean, there's a decentralization to this violence and this pr perspective violence that makes it really tough uh, you know, one of the things you talk about is the Palmer raids and, and a robust law enforcement response. And, you know, well, I, I secretly hope that law enforcement has, you know, infiltrated all these militias. I, I strongly suspect that's not the case. And so how did you talk to law enforcement at all? And were you able to sort of uh, get a feel for how broad this problem is? I did a little bit. I mean, in the course of my reporting, I did talk to military officials and um, intelligence officials. I talked to a mayor, this was in Portland, who oversees the police department. I don't know, I didn't talk to like state level police departments. Um, mm -hmm. But but yeah, I think, um, I mean, it, and I have covered this, the sort of disaggregation of, the geographic disaggregation of extremist movements in the age of the social web over the course of my um, career as a writer. And so I've thought a lot about this. I mean, I think what I've heard over time, both for this story and other stories from, from those who are you know, in law enforcement or military roles, is that, um, you know, previously you might have a person who, you know, is predisposed toward participating in an act of violence or might be convinced if put in the right community to, to act on frustrations or, or bigotry or whatever it may be. But all of a sudden we have made it just so easy for people to find and build those communities. And, and it's, I think it's important to recognize that these like violent extremists are, it, the, the, the community aspect of it really is a draw. Like you're finding people for all the reasons that people might seek community in church or neighborhood group or where, you know, your profession, whatever it may be. And they're finding people with a common worldview and that, you know, there's again, all sorts of literature that shows that people are cap capable of doing things in groups or with a group mentality that they'd never do alone. And so, 
when you remove the geographic barrier and you remove the barrier of sort of like ordinary social norms that might say like, oh, of course you're not going to, uh, you know, try to break into Congress or of course you're not going to try to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Um, you suddenly have all kinds of places where people can gather and convince each other to do terrible things. And that's very different from what we used to see with, uh, if you go back to the Timothy McVeigh days, there's a new book out on that by Jeffrey Tubin called Homegrown. And I just finished reading it, and he, he brings up this point that one of the things that those move, early movements struggle with is finding other people to connect with. I mean, you had to travel to gun shows. It was expensive. It was time-consuming. And you ultimately ended up with just a handful of people in a room that couldn't really do anything. Whereas now, you know, you can access thousands or, or millions uh, just by clicking on your computer. So the entry costs have gone down to almost nothing. Um, and, and that's made it very easy for folks to get together. The model I think of... Uh, you know, many of us spent years working under the GWAT model, which is the, the global war on terrorism. I know we don't use that term anymore, but um, it's sort of the ISIS model where attacks are not planned, they're inspired. So there's, there's no command authority telling you to go hit these five targets. We're just going to make you angry and hope that you'll choose one or more on your own. I think that's exactly it. And I think a lot about, like, uh, you know, especially around the conversation about how to properly moder moderate the social web. Like, I think about how... Uh, you know, there's, of course, a case for companies taking ownership of the conversations that are taking place on their platforms and, and you know, rejecting uh, hate, bigotry, extremism, whatever. On the other hand, to your point about the, you know, how law enforcement's able to track these things, pushing it underground is not necessarily helpful from uh, people's ability to sort of assess what's going on. And Telegram has become, the app Telegram has become a really popular place for sort of the, the stop the steal crowd. And I, of course, as a journalist, subscribe to a lot of these channels, and it's just like blasting out messages of, of extremist views. And, and you can easily imagine, you know, the, the quote-unquote right person or the wrong person being a recipient for these views and being persuaded to act. And again, you don't need to even coordinate or organize, and we certainly see that happening today. And, that, and that's a major concern among law enforcement is the sort of lone wolf attackers. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, the uh, Stop the Steal. So we look at January 6th, and you see people who are chartering planes or, or buying lots of expensive you know gear to bring with them. So that's sort of a different type of demographic than the earlier focus where you may have had on, on folks that, are, that have economic struggles. It didn't seem like they were in that group. So you, now you've got middle class, upper middle class folks who want to engage in the same types of activities. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and we should, of course, not paint anyone with too broad a brush in terms of like the demographic that's capable of doing bad things. Adrian, one thing you know, our membership and, and our listeners, you know, largely were were veterans of, of military service, um, and you know, one of the things that we talk about often is how um, the military gives you, to borrow a phrase from Sebastian Younger, who's a, a friend of ours, um, it gives you a tribe, and it gives you a sense of, you know, uh, be, being valuable to the tribe, and therefore the tribe values you, and one of the things that we've obsessed about, really, is when people leave the military, and, you know, they go home to their communities, and they've no longer got this kind of tribe, and you know many uh, by no means all, of course, but you know many are are lost, and you know it starts so simply with um, you know some Facebook posts, and you know your buddy saying let's go shoot some guns in the woods, and the next thing you know you're trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. So, you know how 
how much or if any did you become aware of kind of a veteran presence in these in these movements yeah i mean i think it, it certainly is a concern and you've heard high level military officials acknowledge as much that this is a worry i mean also just in general that guarding against the the politicization of the military knowing that um you know we we want our troops to be representative of all Americans and, you know, for all the, I don't have to explain this to you both as veterans, of course. Um, but, but no, I think it's, it's real. And I think it's what you're saying about um, that transition moment when you leave the military, I think you're right that a lot of people would find themselves in a place where they're looking for that sense of community. Um, and, and of course there's been reporting too, when you look at groups like the Oath Keepers, like there have, there's been reporting that shows that, um, that, you know, military and law enforcement folks are among the ranks of these extremist groups. So I, I don't think that there's anything disproportionately, like I wouldn't want to suggest that they're disproportionately represented by members of the military, but I think given, you know, what we count on our military to do for our country and what they represent, it's particularly concerning um, just because, it, you know, it goes against, it positions them against the, the best interests and national security interests of the, of the country. Um, and, and then one other thought I have, and I, I'm curious for what, what you both would think of this, is I, especially when you look at the more right-wing extremists, there is this common theme of, like, we're doing this for America, it's for patriotism, and sort of this, like, co-option of what I previously would have identified with sort of, like, classic patriotic military values, frankly. And so one thing that I've observed is the sort of borrowing of military culture and language among people who may have no connection whatsoever to the military, but then, you know, someone who's leaving the army or the Marines or whatever it may be, leave, uh, you know, is seeking their next community and, uh, oh, these people like are speaking a language that I understand and relate to. And um, it's about honor and freedom. And when in fact, the actions are not reflective of the, the stated values. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've written a little bit about this subject, but, you know, the, <laughs> there's a whole can of worms there. You know, what I think is... We fought a 20-year war with volunteer force, and in order to do so, you have to recruit people to fight that war. And in addition to you know financial and economic incentives, one of the ways that we did that was to, for lack of a better term, tell people that they're special, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as as veterans come in and they've been told, you know, they're doing one, two, three, seven deployments to Iraq. And you're telling them that, you know, you're, you're a special person, you're, you're better than your fellow citizen for, you know, in, in not so subtle ways sometimes for going and doing this. And now the war ends and, you know, they're going to continue to think in, in some cases that, you know, maybe, maybe the rules don't quite apply to them. And so that's part of it. But I think that, you know, there's a, in all these movements with the political violence, and I, I'd be curious what you think about this. I mean, you know, I'm struck by the narcissism of it, right? You know, just the, I, I think that's a thread that we perhaps don't, you know, take seriously enough, you know, go to go shoot up the mall in Texas. It's a very narcissistic thing to do, right? You know, to, to be this, you know, this, this judge of, of your fellow human. So, what do you think about that? Like, how does sort of this narcissism and online culture and getting the clicks and the likes and all of that, how does that play into it? Yeah, I mean, it's so deeply disturbing. And I think you're right. I mean, someone who's capable of doing that 
can only be thinking of themselves. Like, what else? It just it's incomprehensible. Anyway, but um, it's certainly and and you and there are studies that show that you know people uh, wanting the notoriety and <clears throat> I'm I'm sure you're aware there's a you know a a, lo a long sort of standing and ongoing debate within journalism about how therefore do you cover these sorts of violent attacks without inadvertently glorifying the perpetrators and so um, so yeah I I think I mean I think it's there is certainly narcissism but it's also just something um, I, I think there is something broken in our culture where. I, I struggle over this a little bit because I'm a big believer in individualism as, a, as an American value and how good that can be for and has been for some of the values we hold most dear as Americans. Um, on the other hand, you couple this sort of like classic American individual spirit with um, breakdowns in the social fabric, whether that's, uh, you know, again, people like not going to church as much or not finding places to see each other face to face. And, and you know, I'm, I think the internet's miraculous in so many ways, but I do think that it's played a major role in the coarsening of our discourse and sort of dehumanizing one another in how we debate. And so I worry a lot about sort of, you know, in terms of the rise of narcissism or that playing a factor in, in people carrying out violent attacks, I think it's against this cultural backdrop of all these other things that kind of force us in a direction of um, dehumanization, frankly. But those, but those acts of violence do still at least seem to be connected to some sort of political agenda. Um, you know, we, we define terrorism as, as violence with a political goal, and, and sometimes we get too focused on which way the compass is pointing if it's left or right. But what distinguishes the extremists from the non-extremists is the willingness to use violence and the normalization of violence. So we, we've seen that happen. And, and when I think about that, I guess I look at something like the January 6th attack, and I wonder, is that, was that the end of something or was that the beginning of something because you know previous incidents Ruby Ridge led to Oklahoma City and, and Waco contributed to the rise of paramilitary movements. So I'm curious as to what you yeah. think about that. Yeah, no, I think it's a really really important question. And um, in terms of right, whether it's the end or the beginning, I think I, I think it looks more like the beginning than the end in the sense that I certainly and others uh, thought maybe after that, after January 6th, that there would be a sort of unifying moment for leaders across the political spectrum to say, like, you know what, we can disagree on lots of things, we can disagree deeply, but we can agree on this one thing, like, let's not, that's not okay. Um, but instead, you know, you have the doubling down in support of the perpetrators on January 6th. You know, I'm subscribed to, like, all kinds of campaign emails from across the political spectrum, and you see, like, just, just frankly, like propaganda, sort of trying to rewrite the history of what happened that day um, on the right in, in, in particular. Um, and so, so yeah, and, and then in terms of, you mentioned the paramilitary movement of the 90s, which is, is fascinating to me. And I, um, you know, I think there are a couple ways that it, it's uh, reminiscent of what's happening today in the sense that, you know, there's a lot, it's like a lot of the same anti-government, anti-establishment worldview. Um, but in that case, and, and arguably there there are incidents in the, in you know in our time where we could we could point to as well. But in that case, I think Ruby Ridge and Waco in particular, you had real uh, missteps by the government and, and in their intervention that exacerbated people's attitudes against the government. Um, and I think arguably culminated in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so um, I remember I spoke with or this in my article, but I spoke with one researcher who had spent a lot of time with paramilitary groups in the 90s um, and, and was sort of asking her, 
hopefully on my part and sort of naively, like, oh, like, that sort of seemed to go away. Like, was that just because we got distracted by 9-11? Or like, what happened? Like, what can, is, there, is there good news here that, or something we could draw on? And she was sort of like, oh, no, that never went away. It just went underground because after Oklahoma City, people knew to sort of lay low. But the, the simmering sort of same worldviews and resentments were there. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I, I do think you're right to look to that time and trying to understand today. So, Adrian, do you do you anticipate a moment that it, it, I mean, is there a tipping point, right? Like, like what has to happen? Does there have to be, you know, an assassination or, or you know, a, a bombing? Like, what? How? In your research, did you find you know you use the example of the you know the years of lead in Italy and the mm. assassination of the the former vice pre or uh, the former prime minister rather? I'm sorry, um, and <clears throat> You know, does that have to happen here, or is there a way to to walk it back? You know, the thing that, again, perhaps naive. I'm I'm not a historian, but you know, I think of like the Troubles, right, in, in right. Northern Ireland, and you know that that was um, generational and it took thirty years, but eventually there was sort of a negotiated settlement without sort of a, you know, an assassination of the Queen or, or the like. But what, what what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I do think this thing we're in is generational. I think, I mean, this goes back to the question about whether January 6th was the culmination or the beginning. And I think most likely it's probably just like a major marker along the way. Like it seems like what we're in is is multifactorial, multifactorial and um, complicated and it will not be easy to get out of this um, in terms of the, the violence and partisanship and polarization and alienation. Um, and then to your other question, I mean, I've thought a lot about this, and it's it's so deeply uncomfortable to cast it in those terms. And and I'll say that one of the people that I spoke with for my article did exactly that. That he he was sort of musing, and again, like no one wants to have this thought exercise. But if on January sixth someone had been assassinated, Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, which certainly seemed among some people to be the intent, um, would that have led to a different outcome? And um, first of all, you never want to have to get to that point. Um, and also, yeah. I'm not totally sure that it would make a difference. I mean, it's, it's, I feel so cynical saying that, but given how little changed since then, um, and, and I do really worry, and, and I will say that the, the officials that I've talked to at the highest levels of, of you know, in the White House and in, in military, they really do worry that that's where we're headed, especially as we approach it under very... Um, you know, probably polarizing presidential election. Has terrorism ever worked? I mean, right, like, you know, to, to achieve kind of explicit political ends, you know, I mean, certainly you can think of, like, terrorism having an effect, you know, that the assassination of the Archduke led to World War One, right? So, you know, certainly it can lead to this kind of cataclysm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it seems to be fairly ineffective in general. Like, what, what do you think? I mean, hopefully, yes. Like, I want to say it doesn't work, but I think, I guess it depends what your desired outcome is, right? So, like, yeah. you could even look, I mentioned in my piece, too, the, the period of anarchy in the early 20th century, and this was a group of anarchists who wanted, like, true, true in the true sense of the word, wanted to tear down the state. You know, a lot of them were sort of socialist, communist, like, variations of anarchists um, in terms of how they wanted to reinvent the world. And, you know, the, the violence that they 
participated in didn't ultimately work in the sense that many of them ended up deported or they blew themselves up or whatever. But like some of their their worldview seeped into the culture and led to like reforms for workers in factories, which is a good thing. I mean, I'm of course not advocating for violence as a means to that end ever. Of course not. Should not have done that. But um, so so I guess it me it depends what you mean by does it work. Um, the other example that comes to mind for me is after the period of Reconstruction when. Um, people, you know, there was a backlash against uh, black people being freed and elected fairly and, uh, you know, either murdered or driven out of the South and in the period sort of grotesquely known as redemption. And and that worked. That was violence. That was terrorism that worked in the sense that it achieved its ends. And so I think that is what we have to be um, very worried about today is that, like, what is it that these violent actors, what is the world that they want to create in destroying the one we have? And if they achieve their goals, what does the world then look like? And I, and I think that's, in some cases, hard to define. For some, it's just like they want Trump back in the White House. For others, who knows what? Maybe they're just here for, you know, chaos. But but that is a real question among the people who think most about um, the problem of political violence in America today. Is like, what, do, what are these people after, actually? And, and it's different from the past experience because in, when you look at the 20th century, a lot of the sources of inspiration, you mentioned anarchists, they came from abroad, right? So the Russian Revolution, that's where we had you know, communism and workers of the world unite. So the sources that they were getting their inspiration from came from beyond our shores, whereas today it would appear to me that the sources of inspiration are homegrown. So they're, mm-hmm. they're much closer to get to, to home and they're harder to, for us to root out because they're sort of woven into the fabric of our society. Whether we want them to be there or not, they are. Um, and so yeah. I would argue that it's going to be much harder to, to root those out. And for the fact that you mentioned, they don't really have a specific clear goal. It's just, it changes from minute to minute. Like whatever we're angry about now, that's what we're angry about now. And then tomorrow it'll be something else. Right. It's what some, one, um, one extremism researcher called salad bar extremism, which is a term yeah. for this sort of just like grab bag of ideologies. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it's, I try to square my own experience in the military with, um, you know, the, the, the stated goals of some of these more extreme elements, right? Like, you know, and, and how we, we had this saying in the, in the SEAL teams, you know, don't confuse enthusiasm for capability. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, every time these guys are, you know, whether it's, you know, Marge talking about national divorce or civil war or what have you, it's, you know, I, I've seen the full power of the U.S. government, and it's, you know, it's laughable to think that you're going to carve out a slice of geographical territory, and you know, but I think you're right. I mean, I think you know they sure can. You know, I mean, they're they're already doing it, right? That you can walk into the shopping mall and and cause you know wreak havoc. Um, so, what do you think is the way forward? I mean, you know, I've realistically kind of regretfully come to this conclusion that, well, the answer is to just hold the line until we all die. <laughs> but, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, I think I, sometimes I think about this and, and when I think about what the right path is, I sometimes worry that I sound just like hopelessly optimistic, but I feel like you kind of have to be like, we have to imagine the country that we deserve. And like part of being American, I think is like always reaching for an ideal that may not be, within our grasp, but like keeping our standards high because that's who we are as a country or who we should be. Um, and so for me, I mean, it, it comes down to leadership. Like I think the like 
the, the I mean, there's all sorts of other sort of tactical, like how do you take existing extremist groups and dismantle them or re-educate people or provide economic opportunities? Like these are all real um, and important tactics. And again, it's this like very multifactorial, multifactorial issue woven into all kinds of like systemic complexities. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's like who represents our country? And the one thing or one of the things that each of us, once you're 18, have the power to do is to vote. And and if like, you know, again, one concern is that a third of the country actually endorses a sort of worldview that has been um, complicit in in endorsing or even, you know, encouraging this violence. But but I still, I really do believe that there are enough good Americans who, if we like laser focus on this as an issue that like, we're not, as a country, like we're not gonna put up with this anymore. Like, let's be honorable again. Let's be good to one another again. Who are the leaders at every level of government, like school boards, city councils, whatever it may be, like, like really, you know, reclaiming American values in terms of what we expect of our leaders. Um, even to the point of like forced discourse and, and all the rest. And so again, like that requires um, people to care and to believe that change is possible, but I believe it is. So I'm, I'm you know, I'll just keep writing about it and hope people <laughs> are inspired. No, I think that's, I think that's right. I, you know, the, I think it's, you know, important to recognize, you know, we, you get one, you get your, your sample size of life is, is one, right? So, you know, this feels insane and out of control much of the time, but, you know, it's probably not as bad as 1859, I, I, I would hope, right? Like, you know, I think that there's um, debating slavery and the economic and moral repercussions of, of doing away with slavery seems like a much more difficult task than yeah. Um, you know, what we're, what we're going through today, I, I think, so I, I'm hopeful. Well, Adrian, what's, what's next for you? Are you going to continue to, to work on this topic? What do you, what do you got coming down the pipe? Yeah. I mean, I think I will only because it feels like it's in some ways the most important thing facing our country today, especially with uh, another election coming um, along startlingly soon. Um, and the other thing that to me is actually really related that I'm, I'm thinking about right now and actually working on a piece about this right now is, related to um, the rise of AI, which of course everyone's talking about. Yeah. And yeah. to me, that this is another opportunity for us to assert our values as not just Americans, but humans, and so much to think about in terms of how we relate to one another and how we communicate and, and to make sure that we're building a world where people are respecting one another and disagreeing with one another, but respectfully and, and all the rest. So to me, those two things really go together because it's all about the world that we are you know, collectively making. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm thinking about. We're moving towards something new for sure. And where can folks find you? Are you on Twitter? Uh, yes, although I have not been tweeting as much as, as of late, but I'm I'm Adrian Laff on Twitter. So it's just Adrian and then L-A-F on Twitter. Um, and of course, theatlantic.com. Everyone read The Atlantic. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Adrian, thank you so much for your time today. That was a, a wonderful discussion. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org. 